Okay, well, it is January the 21st, and this is supposed to be our last time talking about the Nicene Creed for a bit, because we had two phrases to finish. We made it all the way to forgiveness of sin, but, you know, of course, the line in the Creed is one baptism for the forgiveness of sin, right? One baptism for the forgiveness of sin. And um, maybe it's helpful to talk a little bit about that one baptism and, and the reason one was really important. Remember, we started the creed out by talking about how there were different groups of, of Christians in the early church. And there was one group in particular called the Donatists who said that people who had recanted their faith during the great persecution by offering a sacrifice to the genius of the emperor, bishops, priests especially did this to save their lives. The choice was offer a sacrifice to Diocletian or die. Some of them offered that sacrifice, repented, and resumed their leadership in the church. The Donatists said if, if your priest or your bishop did that, then any sacramental ministry they did did not count because they had tainted themselves with their lack of faith and fidelity. The Donatists said then, you needed a second baptism. So the creed is saying really early on that the sacrament works regardless of the piety of the clergy. That's why you hear the one, the one baptism bit. We talked about this at length earlier. You know, we all get that, however... <laughs> If we knew someone were a known offender, it might affect whether we continued to receive sacraments from that person, right? I think that's a very, very human response, particularly if they're a known repeat offender. Um, that, that, I think, is probably a desire for justice in each of us. I don't know if we want to return to that conversation or not, but that's, that's why we hear one baptism. Um, baptism itself might be worth talking about just a little bit historically because it, of course, has changed quite a bit over the last um, almost 2,000 years it's been practiced. And not to bore you or, or to talk too tangentially about sort of what happens, but um, immersion in water, of course, was a very old practice. It predates John the Baptist. Uh, and to, to sort of give you the history of it, which I'd like to do, and then talk about John and Jesus and the early church and up to now, um, and, and how that represents forgiveness of sins, we'll get there. That, that seems okay. Um, many of you know, if you've ever read through parts of Deuteronomy or Leviticus, that there are a number of things that you can do in the course of everyday life that defile your ritual purity. So this has nothing to do with right or wrong, it has to do with pure and impure. So it's helpful at the outset to think that pure and impure has nothing to do with morality, as we understand it. There are things that happen in life that contaminate our bodies and thereby our souls temporarily, and in order to sort of reach out and touch holy things, those have to be dealt with. What are those things? Uh, if you're a woman, menstruation, if you're a man, an emission, right? So, so you can see already that um, <coughs> women can be sort of separated from the camp, going way back to when they were revolving in the wilderness, for about a week out of every month. 
If you read a book like The Red Tent, it gives you insight into how that might have looked. Now, of course, it's not immoral to have your period. And they wouldn't have thought that. They just thought it was a natural, even though it was a natural thing, it was a dividing thing. Of course, it's not immoral for a man to have an emission. It could be related to some immorality, could be, but in and of itself, not. However, that would have made you impure. Touching something dead, I mean, and that could be being a pallbearer for your father's funeral, which of course we'd say is something appropriate to do, then as now, that would be the determination. Not immoral, something appropriate to do, nonetheless, because you've touched something that is dead, you categorically have to be separated until that contamination is dealt with. Yes, sir? Eating is really darn difficult. So keep in mind that if the meat is cooked, the, the one in general cooking the meat are the Levites. So this is very different from how we do life now. People did not butcher their own meat. The Levites did that. So, so you want to think through, what if you shot a deer? You took it to a Levite. The Levite did the butchering and offered parts to God. Now remember, there's no refrigerator. The only way you really could preserve meat would be by smoking or salting. In general, what happened is if you shot a deer, you brought it to the Levite, and the town ate all of it because they only had a few hours to do it before the meat became rancid. Now, eating the cooked meat did not put you in a point of uncleanliness. The Levite, touching the carcass, had to do ablutions. So this is important, even if you're a priest, in fact, especially if you're a priest, especially if you're a Levite, and you can read those rules if you go back to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you have to contend with the impurity of having touched something dead. Sometimes what that meant was, in the earliest days, it meant you were quarantined from everybody else until the contamination ran its course, which is usually like 24 hours. And, and that may be because medicinally they were worried about contagion, but, but I didn't think that's the reason biblically. The idea was the, the, the contamination of death, which is defiling, somehow evaporates after 24 hours. You don't get a good explanation why, but that's just sort of the rule. If you read it medically, that probably makes some sense, right? Is, is they want to make sure you're not passing on any contamination. But remember, the Bible is not medical. This is, this is ritualistic worship and an understanding of the world we no longer share. But keep in mind, we have antibacterial soap and we have penicillin, and they had neither of those things. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't know. And, and, I, and I, I, I think it's, um, there's not really a great, um, there's really not a great one-sentence answer that I'm aware of biblically. Um, I think b blood I'm a little bit more aware of, but when you touch a dead body, it doesn't mean you're touching its blood. The reason for blood, right, we've talked about this before, blood was understood to be the life of the animal or the life of the person, and, and it, it was understood almost supernaturally that when blood moved, that animated your body. So, so to touch that is almost like touching somebody's soul. Uh, 
with that understanding, right? So, so, so that one I think is a little easier to kind of wade into, but in terms of a carcass, I don't, I don't really know. Is that okay to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure they knew either, but I think it was just sort of, well, the rule. Yeah. You know, it, it, what Kathy said is that the rabbis have tried to do this explanation, but do you remember that the rabbis don't really exist until 500 years after the, after the Bible? So, so, you know, in the, when the Bible's being written in the earliest years, there's not rabbinic discussion about it. That really happens around 100 years before Jesus starts to happen. Um, but you didn't get a book like the Talmud until later until after Jesus even, right? And, and, and this is an interesting thing that happens in Judaism that we don't do. And, and, I, and I actually think it's to our loss. The Levites were butchers. They were descendants of Moses. Oh, uh, the descendants of Aaron. I didn't think they discussed. I think they passed down. So the, the idea is, you know, we talked about this before. When Moses goes up on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, he gets the Torah and he writes it down. But he got another Torah he didn't write down. That's called the oral Torah. And he told that to his sons and his grandsons who passed it on to their sons and grandsons, right? And that didn't get written down until the Talmud. People couldn't read anyway. So, so the interesting thing is, the, the Bible is old, is old, the writing's old, but there was an unwritten part given the same weight as the Bible that was being orally trans passed down. And we didn't get the oral Torah until like 1,000 of our common era. That's like A.D. Does that, does that make sense? That's how much tradition, oral tradition, that's how long that sort of reigned. So again, I've told you what this looks like before is, you know, you can't, uh, boil a kid in its mother's milk. Well, in Hebrew, it says fat. It says fat. But the oral Torah says, no, it's milk. And that's why it's milk to this day. Not because someone likes it, but because the oral Torah said, no, it's always been red milk. Now, the truth is, milk and meat are the same three consonants in Hebrew. And no vowels are written in the Bible. So it could be either one, although any biblical scholar will tell you it should read fat. The oral Torah says it's milk. And so the food division is an interesting thing, right? Because, again, we talked about this before. If you want to divide people from other people, the easiest way to do it is with food. I mean, I could serve vegetables in my home, and theoretically my brother, who's an Orthodox Jew, can't eat them. Because no matter how I prepare them, my oven's not kosher. My sink's not kosher. Why not? Because I process meat and dairy in my sink. My oven has cooked meat and dairy at the same time. I'm a Gentile. Do you, 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 you get what I'm saying? Now, I don't mean right or wrong. I just mean it's very divisive. How divisive was Judaism at the time of Jesus? The answer is miscellaneous, <laughs> just like it is now. You know Jewish people who eat cheeseburgers, I bet. Okay, so during daily life, you picked up contaminants that were not necessarily like dirt, 
they were spiritual con contaminants, okay? It has nothing to do with morality, just with everyday life. How do you get rid of that stuff? Initially quarantining, but they, they sort of got the practice, and it's hard to say when this happened, some, sometime after the Babylonian exile. So this would be after the year 540 BCE, probably more like 300, 200. There was an idea that they could, they could have a ritual bath. This is called a mikvah. And uh, the rules are that, that the bath has to be fed from flowing water. That means you shouldn't draw it and then pour it into a tub. You, you, you should have a channel from a river feed it. Or perhaps from a cistern, which is rain falling, the water moves from there. So it's not artificially drawn. Now, that, that mikvah could be under your home. There's a lot of them under homes, which are like home cisterns. And the mikvah was something that you could enter into time to time or at intervals during the day. Sort of like if you're a Muslim, there's five times when you pray, right? Before dawn, morning, you, you know this? You, you could enter the mikvah sort of um, incrementally like that four or five times a day to make sure that you were washing away any natural contaminants. Natural contaminants that we don't believe in anymore, right? Like semen, like, uh, like having your period. Make sense? Uh, so people were doing this. Now, now that water, this is not a water-rich area of the world. This is like Southern California, who gets, what, 12 inches of rain a year? 18 inches of rain a year. So they had to be really savvy with how they collected it. And once they fed it, friends, it's not like they, they got in it and rinsed it out and refilled it. <laughs> now they could have been getting in that water, that same water, all year for their ritual bath. If you ask a Hindu what the cleanest water in the world is, you know what they'll tell you. The Ganges, but not just the Ganges. Because I'll tell you, if you go north to Kashmir, where it comes out of the Himalayas, it's real clean. That's not the best part of the river. <laughs> you know the best part of the river, right? It's in the city of Baranasi. In Hindi, it's called Banaras. The water is like yellow. It is full of contaminants. I mean, it could be very detrimental to your health to get in the water at that point, especially to submerge yourself. By the way, if I were there, I would get in. Okay. <laughs> you could take a jar of that water out of Benares. That's the cleanest water in the world. You could look in it, and there's like radioactive isotopes that you can almost see with your naked eye. That's the cleanest water in the world spiritually. That's how the mikvah was understood. So people would do this ritual immersion in mikvahs, and that would wash off the natural contaminants like death, Contact with a Gentile. Contact with somebody who hadn't cleaned themselves after their period. You had no way of knowing that, but you could have done it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? You interact with people all the time. That guy whose hand you shook, he might have been unclean because he had a nocturnal emission that he didn't wash off. Well, guess what? Whether you knew it or not, now you are contaminated. That's why you go to the mikvah ritualistically and not just as needed. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Now, notice what the mikvah did not take care of. It did not take care of active disobedience. 
The mikvah never washed away sin that you intentionally committed. It washed away impurity that happened from the natural course of life. Does that make sense what I'm saying? How'd you deal with sin? Temple sacrifice. Things like offering turtle doves if you were poor, lambs if you were rich, trying to make amends. So we don't know how old this goes back, but you know there's a couple Jewish holidays that still happen today. Rosh Hashanah, which is like the fourth Jewish New Year. (laughs) You read the Bible, there's four different times this New Year. Passover is one of them. Sukkot's one of them. Depends when you're reading what the New Year is. Anyway, Rosh Hashanah means Happy New Year. And 10 days later is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's when all the, all the intentional or unintentional sins of the community get dealt with. Rosh Hashanah happens, you've got 10 days. They say God writes your fate for the next year on Rosh Hashanah. And you've got 10 days to change your fate. The way you do it is by repentance, by making right with your neighbor. So we do Lent for 40 days. This is really like a 10-day Lent. But it's, it's not like you give up chocolate or wine. It's like you think really hard about anybody you have hurt or aggravated or sinned against, and you better make it right fast. Because if you don't, you're going to pay for it all year. Even that doesn't deal with the accumulation of intentional transgressions. So this is a problem if you're Jewish. It's a problem. Again, lots of people washing themselves. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was... We found them in a place called Qumran. We think that they're the library. Most people think they're the library of this group called the Essenes. The Essenes were a religious sect. Frankly, they're Jewish fundamentalists. And what they decided was there's rules for priests about having the highest purity because priests are going to go into God's presence. So they have to be completely pure. They're only for priests, and they're only on high holy days. But the Essenes decided they would all live like priests every day. Because that's what they were going to do. None of them were, well, some of them might have been priests. Might have been. But in general, not. These are like lay people. This is like living in a monastery, basically. It's like living like the highest, purest, holiest life you can imagine. And, and they are people, particularly, who are really into the mikvah. So a lot of scholars say maybe John the Baptist started as one of those people. Because after all, John the Baptist is pretty darn extreme. He wore a garment made of camel hair, but... Friends, the, the hair was against his skin. Why would anybody do that? Because uh, it itches and it hurts. <laughs> and, and that's sort of like wearing a hair shirt in the Middle Ages. It's not like doing penance. It's not like you hurt yourself because God's happy with that. And, and, and it's more like um, thinking about every time you have that itch, it's a call to prayer and a call to remember to live into God's Torah. Well, let me tell you, it's going to itch all the time. <laughs> So it's a constant reminder of, oh, like I need to live into this bigger life. So that's a pretty wild way to live, just so you know, right? Um, So possibly John's one of these people. People have been dunking themselves for a long time, but John does something kind of new because he says that there's going to be one baptism not for the forgiveness of ritual impurity. That's what everybody else did in me. John says that immersion in the Jordan River was going to be for the forgiveness of sin. Now, this seems like a very novel thing that John has introduced, as far as we can tell. Getting underwater, not novel. What it means, novel. Uh, Helpful to know that the Baptist, baptize, is a fake word. It is not a real English word. 
Uh, it has a clear meaning in Greek. It means to dunk, to immerse, to utterly overwhelm. So he is John the dunker. The word actually comes from dyeing cloth. That's its etymological root in Greek, to saturate cloth by passing it completely under the dye. Why do we have the word Baptist? Well, the answer is, of course, that when King James was translating the Bible, and by the way, the King James Version at its time was really quite a fine translation. The problem with it now is that the oldest manuscript it used was from the 1500s. And we've discovered manuscripts that are 2,000 or more years older. Um, it came to the word John the Baptist, and of course, the, the, the easy translation is John the Dunker. But the church had been baptizing infants. And dunking or immersing an infant is dangerous. And so, instead of translating the Greek word, they transliterated the Greek word. That means they went to the beta in Greek, and they wrote a B. <laughs> and they went to the alpha, and they wrote an A, and they went to pi, and they wrote a P, because, of course, that's the English cognate, right? And they went to the tau, and they wrote a T, and they went to the yoda, and they wrote an I. You see how this goes? And then, um, really, it looks like this. Baptizo is the, the sort of the verb, and this is a Z, and omega at the end. Well, we don't say baptizo baptize we say baptize that's where the word came from in english but it doesn't mean anything it means dunker <laughs> so the way you should hear it is john the dunker was in the jordan river dunking people for the forgiveness of sins uh, the jordan is an interesting place you'll hear more about it today Some, how many of you been to the jordan either with our group or just on your own it is not an impressive river <laughs> i'm suspicious Anybody been to the Jordan River in Jordan? The baptism site, have you been to Bethany? So just to give you a, a, a schematic here, here's the Sea of Galilee if you're in Israel. If you're Jordanian, you call it the Sea of Tiberias. And the Jordan River kind of meanders down here until you get to this large thing called the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth, right? Um, there's two baptism sites if you visit the Holy Land. There's one in Israel called Yardanit. And really, you can see the ya is like the J. In German, J makes the ya sound. So this is really like the Jordanit, <laughs> right? This is where we went as a travel group last March. And the water was still pretty calm, right? Did anybody get in the water? Terry, you did? There wasn't really a current, would you say? Not at all. The water is kind of greenish. Kind of green. It's not vile or putrid, but it's, it's not blue. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's, it's peaceful and nice. Um, there's another one here. And this is the town called Bethany. And they've, they've located this actually from a 5th century mosaic in the town of Madaba in Jordan, which is sort of right here. There's a mosaic map that shows all the Holy Land pilgrimage sites. And, 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 and this is on there, and this is actually the UNESCO World Heritage Site for the place Jesus was baptized. Now, look, who knows where he really was baptized? Let's not be silly. But um, you can go down here. Now, I was there last week, and let me tell you, if the water was unimpressive here, multiply that by 10 down here. 
The reason being that the, the river Jordan has been siphoned for some time by both Israel and Jordan for drinking water and agriculture. So actually the current flow, theoretically, is only 15% of the ancient flow. It is a sad little creek trickle right now. But at the time of Jesus, um, it could have been quite roaring depending on the rains. There could have been like class three rapids on the Jordan. That's pretty severe, right? So, so don't think this is all calm. Uh, John likely was baptizing people in a raging river for the forgiveness of sins. What they've done since then is, you know, there's, there's this, so the river's here, and what they've done is they've dug a channel that goes through the site and back, and the channel allows the water to be less raging. So if you go to the site right now, you, you'll see that like the place is in the middle of a, an artificial water channel to kind of ameliorate the rapids. By the way, there's no water in it <laughs> because they pumped it all out for agriculture and there's just not any overflow. I remembered my baptism by myself. There's a little lane line. This is so sad. There's like, you're at the bank, and there's some steps down. And actually, it does get deep. I mean, standing came up to here for me before I got to the lane line. And then there's seven feet before there's another lane line. And, And see, on the other side, so on one lane line is Jordan, and the other lane line is the West Bank, which is Palestine now, although, honestly, that's under the, the, the nation of Israel right now. So, so you, there's like seven feet between two places. The, the Palestinian side is a little bit nicer. <laughs> yeah, but it's close and it's small. Uh, so that's, that's the place. So, so what John's doing is radical in that he's saying, hey, you know, uh, in some ways it's like John is saying, you can deal with that accumulated um, contamination from things like dead bodies and Gentiles and non-kosher ovens. You can do that at home. What you want, what everybody needs really is what do you do with sin, and you get washed away one time. Pretty scandalous. Earliest Christians baptized probably naked. I mean, honestly, they didn't wear pants anyway. You know, possibly they went in their loincloth, but, but then what did they dry off with? So you just, just got to think, think through the practicality of this. Jesus sort of goes out there, and, it, and it's public, and that's kind of a big deal because if you're Jewish, there's a lot of modesty compared to being Greek, right? The Greek ideal is this human body is naked, and that's shown in the gymnasium. Um, Jewish people have never religiously bought into that. Uh, it was a big, big point of conflict between Jewish and Roman and Jewish and Greek society. So this is a big deal for people to come publicly naked and be baptized in the Jordan. That's most likely how it happened. The earliest church, in fact, baptized people naked as well, um, either in, not just in the Jordan, but in other rivers or in springs, that sort of business, for the forgiveness of sin. When John does this, make no mistake, he only baptizes adults because The Jordan is so unpredictable and rapid, a child could easily be killed. It's as dangerous for adults because, you know, like if you grew up somewhere like in Minnesota, the odds of your ability to swim are highly decreased compared to growing up in somewhere like Florida or Texas. There's just not as much water. (laughs) And pools don't work as well in Minnesota because they freeze. (laughs) It's not like these folks took recreational swim classes. 
So getting into uh, a torrential body of water is dangerous for an accomplished swimmer, but imagine for someone who's never even had a swim lesson. I mean, this is sort of dangerous business, people getting baptized in the Jordan. Jesus does this as an adult. The earliest Christians did it as adults. In fact, to be baptized in the earliest church, you had to apply and you had to go through a two-year internship <coughs> where they examined you daily and they only baptized one day a year. It was at the Easter Vigil. At the time of Nicaea, that was still happening. There were no infants being baptized at the time of Nicaea. People were adults. After Nicaea, things started to change, and I've mentioned this to you before, a lot of the change had to do with Augustine of Hippo, who wrote, started writing in the late 300s of our common era. And Augustine decided, right, that children are born with original sin, and baptism removes original sin, and if you don't remove that, your immortal soul could be in jeopardy of hell. So since baptism changed to that understanding, you see, no parent would risk that their child died in a state of mortal sin. And this is when infants started to be baptized, the late 300s, early 400s, and from then on, we've gone that way. Does that make sense? Now, of course, you know in the Episcopal Church, we still baptize adults if they've not been baptized before. If someone was baptized as an infant and lived a pagan, rebellious life, we still say that baptism worked. <laughs> you don't get another one. The creed says that, right? We rarely rebaptize folks. So I was baptized in the independent Christian church, which is sort of like the divided Church of Christ with a piano. <laughs> we were real progressive because we had that piano. That was the only thing progressive about us. Um, when I got to be confirmed, I didn't need to be rebaptized. The only cases I think where, uh, where a priest, and I actually suppose it depends on, on who your bishop is and who your priest is. Some priests I've met have asked people to be rebaptized re in order to be confirmed if they were baptized in other denominations. I think that's kind of silly and against the creed. I'm just going to tell you that. I, I've met folks that said, well, if you're a Mormon, you have to be rebaptized because that one didn't count. But I think that's silly. I'm just going to tell you. Um, we believe in one baptism or we believe in two. And the creed says we believe in one, right? Um, now, if you were Hindu and you immersed yourself in the river Ganga at Benares, was it baptism or not? And, and that, that's a conversation. Does, does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? So I've, again, I've met clergy that require Mormons to be rebaptized or Seventh-day Adventists to be baptized or Christian scientists or any denomination they don't understand. <laughs> but the creed says one. Yes, sir? Probably, although I can tell you Mormons do that. is any other formula than that one. There's rubrics, actually, for baptism that you, you thought only Episcopal Church had rubrics. <laughs> there's, there's rubrics that predate this from a, a, a document called the Didache, which means the teaching of the Twelve Apostles that say baptism should be done in running water first. They call that living water in the Bible, water that moves, whether down a hill, from rain, or in a river. That's living water because it moves itself. 
And that's the primary mode of baptism. And then, you know, pouring it last, just so you know. Those pictures of John with the seashell, very late. John the Baptist did not use a seashell. There are no seashells. <laughs> well, there are little tiny ones that belong to snails. There was no large scallop shell in the Jordan. It's fresh water. <laughs> John pushed people under the water. Um, and that brings us sort of, that tells you like why we do it differently. Hopefully that wasn't too too boring. Um, <laughs> it might have been. That tells you why we do it the way we do it. And um, one baptism we say in the creed for the forgiveness of sins. But I think it sort of begs the question then, do you have to be baptized to be forgiven? I, now, I, listen, before you weigh in on that, the church I belong to, the independent Christian church, that's the divided church of Christ with a piano. We said, yes, if you were not baptized, you were going to hell when you died. We were very confident in this. But you had to be an adult. <laughs> now, if you weren't an adult and you died, God could take care of you. But if you were an adult <laughs> and you died not baptized, you were going to hell. This is what we decided. The Christian church, as in the church of Christ, holds the same doctrine. I'm not talking about the united church of Christ. That's why I'm saying the divided church of Christ they don't call themselves that, but just so you know, I'm not talking about the United Church of Christ. Yes, ma'am. It could be tough. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair question. Um, so I've made the church sound really un ungracious, and of course there's, n there's, there's many wonderful things about it. But It's probably fair. It's a probably a fair assessment, as long as I think we're willing to consider that even within our own denomination, there are certainly people and parishes and priests that have that same outlook. I just want to be fair. You may not be those people. You may not even know those people. I've met some of them. You've probably met some of them too, whether you knew it or not, who decided that the sacrament was necessary for God to do what God wanted to do. Well, I think this is a good point. We believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The question is, which baptism do we believe in? The one that comes from water or the one that comes from God? The creed doesn't say. Isn't that interesting? Because even in our text today, you're going to hear some people got baptized with water and never received the Holy Spirit. So which one matters? <laughs> I know the answer's clear. I've already pushed you to it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who gets that? Anybody God breathed on, I suppose because that's what spirit means, breath. So who does God breathe on? I think so, but the creed doesn't say that. The creed invites us to consider. I mean, I think the creed invites us to consider. And if that's the case, why do we do baptism? Baptism is a 
I think, yeah. And who needs the outward sign, God or us? I mean, right, isn't this interesting to think through? I'm not belittling the sacraments, but we're the ones that need them. <laughs> Don't you think? Well, I mean, we need that stuff. Actually, I'm pretty sure he did need it. And, and I tried to make that case in the sermon this morning that Jesus needed to be baptized. Because consider, for the first 30 years of his life, he lived like everybody else he knew. There is no story that says Jesus touched women the first 30 years of his life, or Samaritans, or sick people. No story that says that. But as soon as he's baptized, he starts doing that stuff. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like baptism changed Jesus. Well, you hear that in the sermon. I mean, I don't know that I make a good case for it, but I, but I, but I believe it. I think I, I, I believe it. It's hopeful for me because you know what it means is Jesus, like us, had to learn stuff. He didn't know everything when he was born. definitely would have gone through a bar mitzvah and he definitely was a Pharisee because he quotes the Psalms right and the prophets so Sadducees would never have quoted that stuff they didn't read it they didn't know and care about it so he definitely went to some kind of Pharisaical synagogue all Jewish boys had bar mitzvahs or or they were bad <laughs> you know I mean and, and he's clearly not a bad Jewish boy because he's invited to preach at the synagogue in his hometown right so he's a Jewish person in good standing Likely, and, and, and hard to know about literacy. It's hard to know. Some people say yes, at least semi-literate, because he reads from the Isaiah scroll. But, but you know, young children can read from books without being literate, right? They just know what it says already. Uh, so, so we don't know. Um, bar mitzvah people probably had to recite, if not all of, huge portions of the Pentateuch by memory, and that happened when they were 13. So just so you know, that would be a strong familiarity with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How strong their memorization of those five had to be, we don't know, but, but fluent in order to be bar mitzvahed. Does, does, does that make sense? If the town had a synagogue, it was expected everybody did it. Um, Twenty six AD. Round there. No, no, I mean really. Most people say Jesus born in four BCE four, and he starts collecting people when he's 27 or 30. So I don't want to be exact, but, but think within three years of that date, because Jesus is baptized, does a ministry for three years before he's killed. No, in fact, some of the disciples first saw Jesus, first saw him when he got baptized. Some of the disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. And that's when they met Jesus, when he went out there. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't say anything publicly until John goes to jail. 
So a lot of people tell you Jesus himself was likely a disciple of John the Baptist, learned from John as his rabbi for a bit, and when the rabbi left, Jesus decided to carry on John's tradition as he understood it. That's normal in, in, in the way rabbis functioned. So again, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, which baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, and who gets it? <laughs> and I'll tell you, even though you all are really good about saying the right thing, I think you are. I mean, I, I, I think it's the right thing that, that, that God gives it to people. I do. And, and by the way, it's in our Eucharistic prayer. Th there's two weird things that happen in the prayer. Uh, Jesus took the cup and said, um, there's that phrase in there, uh, this is the forgiveness of sin for many. That's how it's printed. Have you noticed that before? For many. I don't say that. I say for all, because that's, that's my prayer. But I'm not going to change the prayer book, but, but I say for all. Um, and then earlier in the Eucharistic prayer, we say Jesus was a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. I don't know if you've noticed that phrase, but for the whole world. So, so liturgically, it seems pretty clear to me that even though there's many, there's the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> Again, being forgiven doesn't mean you're not accountable. I mean, this is the thing we struggle with. There's accountability for transgressions, but there's forgiveness on top of that, right? And, and I think that's what we deal with. So, so again, I think we have this opportunity when we're baptized to remember this is what God wants for us. We're seeing it happen to somebody else, but really it's something that we're meant to relive over and over and over again is this forgiveness and this commitment to live out of forgiveness in, into joy and for justice and peace. I don't know if that makes sense. Notice, though, that when we do the baptismal commitment, there's very little about your piety. <laughs> there's very little about how many times you pray and whether you think lustful thoughts. You commit to justice for the world. You commit to respecting the dignity of all persons. So, so piety as justice is our baptismal covenant, not piety for the sake of itself. Does, does that make sense? I didn't learn that piety meant justice as a boy. I learned that piety was something you did to please God, and it was something you therefore needed to do. Like you needed to pray a certain amount of time a day to make God happy. It's not what we commit to <laughs> in the baptismal covenant. We commit that piety informs our justice so that we can respect the dignity of all persons. That's related to piety, but piety doesn't happen for its own sake. It happens to form us to treat the rest of the world as God wants the world treated. Does that, does that make sense? I don't think I'm making that up. <laughs> Those of you who are at 8 o'clock, we just read it. Was there anything in there about piety for its own sake? We committed to, the, to, remaining, to breaking bread and prayers, but that happens together. You don't break bread by yourself. In fact, you can't. A Roman priest can say the Eucharist by his self. It doesn't have to be anybody in the room. An Episcopal priest cannot consecrate the Eucharist unless there's at least one other person to say amen. So if you don't say amen, nothing changed. I mean it. So if you ever have a priest you hate, and I hope it's not me, just say, No! <laughs> And if you all say no, then nothing happened. If one other person says amen, well, sorry, the priest worked. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. 
Any other thoughts about baptism? We talked about the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, right? One baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and that leaves us the resurrection of the dead, doesn't it? That's the end of the creed. Resurrection of the dead. Okay, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, we didn't say the resurrection of the dead. You know what we say? Resurrection of the, the body. We're going to say it today. We'll say it today because when we do the baptismal covenant, we use the Apostles' Creed, not the Nicene Creed. Apostles' Creed older, the Nicene Creed shorter. Resurrection of the body. You all want this body you got right now forever? <laughs> Which one do you want? I'm going to be honest. I mean, this body's pretty good if my joints didn't hurt all the time. Like, I feel pretty good in the body, but my joints hurt a lot. So, so you know, if God would give me this body, but also the ability to tinker, like, with my chronic arthritis and that, like, surgery I had and, like, my knees popping and cracking all the time, I, I could probably contend with that. But that's not what the creed says. <laughs> the creed doesn't say the body of your choosing, Right? To be honest, I was really going to choose. I'd pick somebody else's body, you know, and just have, like, my thinking. Well, I kind of wish God would actually improve my thinking, too. You, you, you know, have you ever thought about this? Not sure that that's how it works. Um, it's important to walk through just briefly what resurrection of the body meant, okay? Because remember, if you're Jewish, it's not like you had a soul in your body. If you're Jewish, your soul is your sum total of your being. You don't have one, you are one. If you're Greek, you have a body which is different from your soul. If you're Jewish, they're the same thing. Hard for us to get our head around that because you know what? We've bought into the Greco-Roman tradition so much that we can't help but think everyone's always thought that way. But, but they didn't. Jewish people didn't believe, therefore, that your soul was eternal and your body was perishable because they didn't bifurcate the two. Your soul went with your body. And so in the Jewish understanding, and I mean the earliest one, this is all over Mesopotamia, when you die, your body's in a tomb. Everybody gets that. But you kind of have this bodily existence in the place of the dead, which is not heaven or hell. It's just where dead people go. And this is in Greece, too. That's called Tartarus or Hades. You're not getting ironic punishments there. It's just where dead people go. Ironic punishments come later, <laughs> you know, that's where you have to, like, roll that rock, like Sisyphus has to roll that rock up the slope, but then it rolls back down, so he spends eternity rolling the rock up, right? Th that's a relatively newer idea, and it's Greek, it's not Hebrew. Resurrection of the body really comes around in the second century BCE, and, and a precise date to really focus in on is 167 B.C., when a megalomaniac king who was of Greek origin named Antiochus Epiphanes created an active persecution against practitioners of Judaism. So Jewish people had been messed with before. Alexander did some messing, like created gymnasiums where people exercised naked. The Jewish people don't like that. Right. Antiochus was different. He said if you had the Torah or a scrap of it and it was found, they would burn the Torah and they'd burn you. Antiochus said that circumcision is a gross Jewish thing. We Greeks don't do it. So if you circumcise your kid, then you'll wear the kid's body around your neck 
for a day before you are also killed. Antiochus is the one who went into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig to Zeus. The book of Daniel calls him the abomination that causes desolation. This is new, that somebody is actively repressing a religious group wholesale. It's not just a regular pogrom. It's not just that if you're Jewish, we don't like you. It's that they're defiling all rights in Judaism. So there's a group of people, you can read about them in the Apocrypha, called the Maccabees, who start a revolt. And sure enough, they're revolting for the sake of their religious identity, because if you're not circumcised, you're not Jewish. You're not. And if you don't read the Torah, you're not Jewish. <laughs> and, and that matters more than life. And these people are sort of fighting for their ability to live into God's covenant that they think was ordained through Abraham, right? And what do you know? Some of them got killed. So came the doctrine of resurrection. If you get killed, you die prematurely fighting for your faith. You get your life back. Forever, hard to say early. At least you get your life back, your body. You, because your life was prematurely cut short, you, you get to keep living. Does, does this make sense? We mourn when people die for sad reasons, you know? Like when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. He didn't die naturally, right? What a shame he didn't get the rest of his life. You identify with that sentiment, right? That's where resurrection came from, that sentiment. Now, at the time of Jesus, and even in the early church, hard to know... Um, what that looked like. You can read about Paul, and Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, and their bodies come out of the ground because they died prematurely. <laughs> so they get their life back. Do they go for heaven where they, they sit around and play harps and lyres all the time in albs? That came later. I don't mean it's wrong, it just came later, right? That's resurrection of the body. That's why body's there. It's a justice concern. Right? You get your body back. Now, again, I don't think anybody in the room thinks you get this body back forever in heaven. And, and, and I agree with you. <laughs> As I said, I could make some peace with it, but I want to make some major adjustments to it. <laughs> so, so notice what's happened in the creed. Instead of saying the resurrection of the body in the Apostles' Creed, which, by the way, is also saying that our bodies matter, if you're Greek, your body didn't matter. Your body was a prison for your soul. There's an assertion in the Apostles' Creed, your body is important to God. What you do with your body is important. Your body's good. That's why God's going to bring it back. I learned our bodies are bad things. I did. I mean, implicitly. Nobody ever said, your body's bad. Um, but my body is, is why I want to do evil things, because my body is evil that's not Jewish, and that's not in the creed. That's why you get it back. It's good. God made it to be enjoyed. God created it good. The creed's saying that. But by the time we get to the Nicene Creed, it changes from body to dead. And that's because there's been some time to reflect that it's the resurrection we're looking forward to is not just this body, but it's the resurrection of, of the dead. Now, it doesn't mean, I don't think it means dead people. 
Jesus came back today, I wouldn't need the resurrection of the dead for myself. I'm still alive. You know what I mean? I think the creed, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is talking about the resurrection of the dead. Capital D. The people who are living in separation from God for various reasons could be beyond their own choosing. Do you know dead people who are still physically alive? I'm related to some dead people who are physically alive. I don't know how they will leave death. I don't know it. But the creed says God will do it. And this is the interesting thing, right? The creed can say that God will do it after we die. But I think the creed leaves open that the resurrection of the dead can happen while our bodies are still alive. Anybody lived in death before? I know some friends that lived in death. They were alcoholics. That's living in death. Some of them have been sober for like 30 years. They would tell you they've experienced a resurrection from the dead. I think they're right. If you know a meth addict, I do. They would tell you they lived in death. And that sobriety was a resurrection from the dead. If you know somebody who was abused, neglected physically, emotionally, sexually, I'm pretty sure they'll tell you they lived in death. But I'm positive part of what the creed's saying is we don't have to wait until we're dead to have resurrection from that death. I think the creed says... If we can't do it in our body's life, God, we'll do it when we die. I think the creed says that. And maybe the creed's saying we can have both. <laughs> but I sure want there to be a resurrection from the dead in my lifetime, don't you? Otherwise, why keep living? I think the creed invites us that God's able to do that. We're able to join God in, in doing that. And in some ways, I think this is probably like the gospel, <laughs> the good news. That this, can, this is going to happen eventually, but it could happen now. It could happen now. Maybe that's why it ends the creed, <laughs> that we believe in, th in this. We believe in this. Even if we don't know how it will happen, we believe in it. Even if we don't think it can happen in this lifetime, we believe God can do it for us. I don't know. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, or, you know, and don't you think really that's the whole point of religious life? <laughs> I, I think it also invites us to consider not just as instruments, but as co-conspirators with God. 
I think that's right. I, I, I think that's right. I didn't think we can possibly create a resurrection of the dead. I, can't, I cannot resurrect the dead places in my life. I can't do it. I've tried and failed. Oddly enough, I, I will probably try some more because <laughs> I'm just that crazy, you know. If I just next time, just next time I'm going to do this differently. Um, and, and that's why I think we're co-conspirators because I don't think I can create my own way out of death. But I think it also invites us to say, you know what, there are dead places in our lives too. And I think there's probably no more powerful witness in evangelism than to say, God has brought me out of death into life and I'm still dying. When I meet people who have everything fixed, I cannot relate to them. <laughs> Can you? Jesus turned my whole life around. Oh, man, I'd like to meet that one. Because I haven't met that one yet. I'm just going to tell you, I haven't. I think Jesus can eventually do it. <laughs> I'm probably going to have to be dead so I don't keep fighting, you know? <laughs> uh, that's why I think God might have to wait till I'm dead physically to do it. Because, man, I put up a fight about this. Um, but some things are just difficult even to resurrect. I think that's right. And, and I don't think that's something we need to be afraid of. I think, I think God and the world and, and you and I are all looking for authentic people who knows what it's like to live in some death but have experienced some new life and resurrection. You're good, you're good. To know our story of resurrection becomes really important because that's in the, in the world I grew up in. That's called your testimony. And, and the truth is my testimony is full of plenty of places where I was touched out of death and then I went back to death. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I had a moment of new life. And the, the good thing is God's able to resurrect me again. <laughs> yeah. That if we can't do it, somebody in the community can conspire toward our benefit. And I think that brings us all the way back around to why we changed I believe to we believe. We believe in the resurrection of the dead even if I don't today because I can't see my way out of the death I'm experiencing. Maybe Kathy can and she can lend me a hand. Yeah, I think that's right. Hey, well, thanks. We spent seven weeks on the creed. Now, next week... We're going to come together for the annual meeting. So we'll have breakfast and annual meeting. The week after that, we're going to have day school Sunday, and our day school kids are going to show you some of their work. So kindergartners will probably read to you stories that they've written and show you illustrations. Just even if you don't care, there's a little red-haired girl I'm fond of. Have her read to you, please. She'll be here. She better be. It's neat. Like the fifth graders built circuits last year. And, and that's sort of neat. It's sort of like going to a science fair. Yeah. The week after that, I'm going to show you some pictures from Jordan, and then it'll be Lent. So, so that's what we're doing the next several weeks. But the creed, we're just going to tie a bow on that. And um, thanks for coming along.